Good morning. You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In the twentieth year of the king, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you, Father, that you hear us. It's an amazing way you are present now. And we ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you'd move in a powerful way, that you'd guide my words, and that, Lord, you take what each one of us needs to hear, and that you would speak to us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend uh, whose, uh, their adult daughter has MS. And, um, you know, the symptoms go up and down with MS, but anyway... She had gotten a, a text from her daughter saying the symptoms have suddenly really flared up severely. And, um, and, you know, and would you pray for me? And so she went home with her husband, and they sat down and they prayed for an hour for their daughter. And the next day they talked to the daughter, and she said, uh, I'm not sure how it came up in the conversation, but she said, when did you pray exactly? And they said, well, we prayed this hour. She goes, it was that exact time that suddenly the symptoms left and I, I went to sleep solidly like I hadn't for that hour while you were praying. Completely separate, another part of the country. Prayer really twists your head, doesn't it? You're like, how does it actually work? I mean, you know, and, and this is totally aside from the idea of the great presupposition of prayer. Completely apart. I mean, the great presupposition of prayer presupposition of prayer that I can actually talk to God. 
You know, assuming you believe in a God, going, so a God who made the entire world, the entire universe, all of creation, all-knowing, all-powerful, and I could sit there and, like, talk to him. And he cares. And he listens. Assuming you accept all that. I accept that. I think you should. And I think it uh, actually would help you to, to remain in awe of that, by the way. But accepting all that... Isn't it just crazy to think that that God actually needs us to pray or uses us to pray? Or that this couple's prayer over here at that hour would have some kind of impact or God would even use it to have some kind of impact on these people over here? What are our prayers like a God energy drink? Like he needs it or something? You know, gosh, if I could just get people praying, then I could really do something. The one who made the universe and all things in it, who knows us? You know, and, and, and nature of prayer is that you, you almost take it and you keep you keep turning it around a new facet and it becomes more and more mind-bending, not less mind-bending. But the one thing in Scripture that is absolutely um, without controversy, uh, which is completely easy, is that the God invites us to pray. God um, wants us to pray. God responds to our prayer. It's really, it's, it's, not, it's not even controversial. It is all over the place in Scripture. It's presumed. It's everywhere. I mean, you know, uh, Psalm 32, let, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you. This is annoying, huh? I'll stop moving. Now, the part, bad part is I'm Jewish, and if we, our hands remain still, we go mute. It's a, it's a weird ethnic thing, so... Sorry about that. Don't use that, by the way. Me and Judy, we can, a few of us can use it, but the rest of you guys don't. No. I mean, <laughs> pray continually. Uh, it says in First Thessalonians, pray for me right now. It's good. Uh, you know, James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. He says Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Does that just bend your brain? Really? Wow. God invites us to... And, it's not, and prayer is not something that some Christians have done. I mean, prayer is something every Christian has always done. Every follower of God prays. In many ways, it defines what a follower of Jesus is, one who prays. My own life, I can tell you, I have my pre-prayer life and my post-prayer life. When I became, before I became a believer in Jesus, I never prayed. I remember I tried praying once, and I heard people praying. I think that seems kind of interesting. I went down on my knees, and I tried to pray, and I said, this is absolute lunacy. Talking in my head, this is silly. I became a believer in Jesus, couldn't stop praying. Praying perpetually. You know, marks it off. John Bunyan says, uh, oops, you are not a Christian if you're not a praying person. Pretty strong statement. The promise is that everyone that is righteous shall pray. I like what, um, on the cover, I love what uh, Richard Foster said about it, because I want to talk about that invitation of prayer. He says, it's good to debate the mysteries of prayer, to ponder the profundities of prayer, as I mentioned at the start, to learn the methods of prayer, but it's better to pray. Prayer is a little like an automobile. You do not have to understand everything about its inner workings for it to get you somewhere. I have found that if we simply pray, even if we pray in wrong ways, 
God is pleased with our feeble efforts, and Jesus lovingly guides us into a more excellent way. And also, we can be assured that the blessed Holy Spirit will adjust, correct, and interpret our prayer before the throne of God. I think that's one of the greatest signs, that God will take whatever we try to do, and he'll just move it and make it right. That we'll just pray. And so I want to talk about prayer. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really want to talk about methods of prayer. I just want to talk about some principles of prayer from Nehemiah. There's millions of principles of prayer. But just in the hope of better, you know, digging us up, you know, getting us excited, getting us encouraged, and feeling able to pray more. Um, because all of us, I, I don't know someone who's satisfied with their prayer life. Wherever you are, I'm sure you're feeling I can grow in my ability to pray and encounter God. So let's um, take something from Nehemiah this morning and maybe encouraged in our prayer. Nehemiah may seem like a strange book um, but many, uh, for prayer, but actually in many ways it's the most prayerful book in the whole Bible in my mind. It's perpetually talking about prayer. He's telling his story, and in the midst of it, he keeps stopping and praying. In fact, it, actually, it contains the longest prayer in all of Scripture. And it's a big corporate prayer in Nehemiah 9. But it often does stuff like this. Uh, he'll say, you know, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed, but I prayed, now, strengthen my hands. You know, which is, you know, it's just, to me, it was just such a, he does this throughout the book. He stops and so um, Nehemiah, throughout the book, stops to pray to God. Long prayer in chapter nine. Personal prayer is a corporate prayer in chapter nine. Now, to give you a little context, the context of Nehemiah is um, is uh, this is the exile, right? Israel's been put in exile, and Nehemiah is actually over there before this king, King Artaxerxes, uh, the you know the Mede and Persian king, and it's when after the seven years when they're beginning to come back. And the exiles are back in Jerusalem, and he's gotten this report about them. And he's the cupbearer to the king, which is a really important political position. And he says he's gotten this word, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Keep in mind, your only defense is the wall, right? Or you're thoroughly exposed. You know, walls were critical in the ancient world for any kind of sense of security. And it says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. The natural thing he would do. He mourned, fasted, prayed. And then he's going to pray to actually go before the king and bring this problem and see what can happen. This is King Artaxerxes and they're way off in you know, the Medes and Persians, way off in Persia. And we're going to talk about this great prayer which he offers right here, O Lord God of Heaven. He has this long prayer which has amazing principles. And that's what we're going to talk about today is actually some principles of prayer. Um, but what I think is fascinating is you combine this big long prayer in chapter 1 with this prayer in chapter 2 where he says, The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I pray to the God of Heaven and I answer the king. You know, if it pleases the king, so on. Now what's interesting about it is this second prayer... Do you think he probably said anything audibly? Do you think he even went through any words in his mind? It was mid-conversation, right? King says, what do you want? And he's like, I'm praying, God, help me. It's all in his mind, with his closed mouth, probably without any time, just immediate. I think it's interesting to contrast that immediately after this longer prayer, which is more thought out. And you start to understand something about the modes of prayer. Right? What is it? Prayer is this constant thing, right? Prayer is always happening. I love, what, uh, I love what Evelyn Underhill said. She said, um, because we live under two orders, 
We are at once a citizen of eternity and of time. Like a pendulum, our consciousness moves perpetually, or should move, if it's healthy, between God and neighbor, between this world and that. You know, this first principle is that we live in two worlds. That we live in this, called the, the world of flesh, the, the world in which Nehemiah is standing there as the cupbearer to the king, having a conversation with the king about the exiles there. But simultaneously, he's living in another world. He's living in eternity. He's living in the presence of God. And he's walking in that world. And we as believers are people who believe those two worlds exist. And we're actually living, as she said, like a pendulum between those two worlds or even living in them together. Now, some people might say, well, that's the problem with uh, followers of Jesus. You're all crazy because you believe that other world exists. Right? That is just nuts. You really think this other world exists? And many people live in just the one world. I actually think, ultimately, that leads to despair. I think a life of only believing that world exists, ultimately, it's tough to discern. I think it's tough to manufacture any kind of meaning or purpose in life or why anything even matters. I don't know where there's any morality, there's any ethics, where anything exists in that world. But I think people can force themselves to live in that world, and I think it leads to despair. But I think we all know humans have never just lived in that world. We believe there's a qualitative world, there's a transcendent world. You know, that there is this other world we live in. I think one of the problems for us oftentimes is not that we don't believe that other world exists, but we simply don't live there enough. That we often, even though we believe that world number two exists, we often live in world number one too much. And uh, I think one of the things of prayer is prayer connects these two worlds, doesn't it? Because prayer happens in world one, on my knees, standing up in the midst of a conversation with the king, yet I'm simultaneously in prayer living in world two as well. And so I think one of the first principles of prayer is that we need to live in these two worlds all the time. And, 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 that, and prayer is one of the ways in which we do that. And it can happen, again, it can happen on your knees, in your room, in a long prayer. It can happen in the moment, at work, talking to your boss as something is happening, and you are living, because you are in that other world right when you're in that moment, as much as you are when you're sitting in church today, or as much as you are when you're at home. So number one principle, we live in two worlds. Number two is, uh, you know, the foundation of prayer is on who God is. You know, that he begins his prayer, O Lord, the God of heaven, great and awesome God. You know, that is where it starts. That is where the very idea of prayer starts. When you address him, when you talk to him, you realize God is enormous. He is huge. He's all-powerful. It begins with a place I have no right to even come before you. How amazing it is that even as he continues in it, that you keep your covenant of love with those who love you and obey your commands. That God loves us. This great and amazing God has, uh, you know, uh, has condescended to love me and to care about me and to enter a covenant with me. You know, the, the, the idea of entering a covenant of love, uh, the best way to understand that is a marriage or an adoption. Adoption, actually, in some ways, is the, is the most powerful way because essentially, what do you do, right? You have no, there's nothing with this other child over here. You have no, there's no responsibility. There's no connection to the child. But when you adopt them, what do you do? I make a covenant with you that my love will rest on you no matter what happens. It doesn't matter how you behave or anything like this. I have now entered a covenant with yours and you are mine. Right? It's amazing. That's what God says I've done to you. 
You are mine, and my covenant of love means I will always be committed to you. Now you might say, well, hold on, isn't there a... It's only to those who love him and obey his commands. Ah, interesting, huh? Now, by the way, the word obey there is not obey. It's keep also. Uh, It's not a bad translation to say keep his commands is like obey, but it it kind of misses the idea. And I think sometimes when you think of obeying commands, it becomes too, um, too boxy and linear in a sense, rather than this idea of staying in and keeping hold of. Because I think we all know these covenant of love, they're automatic, aren't they all conditional and unconditional at the same time? You know, you can unconditionally commit to loving and cherishing your spouse, but if your spouse wants nothing to do with you, it's pretty hard to do it, isn't it? You know, if your child whom you've adopted will not stay in your home, will not stay with you, will run away, you know, you, you can't actually do it. You can't have this tight relationship with them. Even though it's, so it's unconditional and conditional, but at the same time you say, but always my, arm, my arms lie open to you to come and to be with me. And so that's what's happening with Israel, right? Israel refused to be in the covenant with God. They ran away. And now all these years later you're saying, but God's saying my hands are still open to you. There's a great picture of this with Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is this, right? God's like, Hosea's playing the role of God and his wife whom he loves perpetually runs away. And Hosea perpetually pursues. You can say they're, they're not actually in their covenant together while his wife's running away, yet he's perpet- you know, they are in a sense. This covenant of love is ever open to it, but needs to receive it. In many ways, in prayer, begins with the idea that who God is. It begins with, you know, and, and also, we keep this covenant, that I'm, I'm in covenant with you. I keep your ways, and we are together. We have a tight relationship. I think we all know in, in all your relationships, right? Don't they all have this... <laughs> They're not always tight, <laughs> and a lot of it has to do with how we act and how we behave, not the other person's commitment to us. Commitment can remain solid. Actually, I think when marriages get in trouble, it's because the unconditional peace um, has problems. You know, that's when it really gets in trouble. The unconditional peace drives the conditional peace. It should. But you might be thinking there, he says, you know, so he's saying, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Lord, the great and mighty God who has entered a covenant of love with me to hear, now hear my prayer. And he moves on and says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. And hence we've been in exile, away from you. Though your covenant, but now, but we know your covenant of love is, uh, is forever. And so this idea of the principle of prayer is the power of confession. Confession is critical because as I might have talked about this idea of remaining in covenant with God, what were many of you feeling? Uh, maybe some of you are feeling bored and not listening to me, but for those who were, um, you might say, um, but I'm, I, I'm not able to keep that covenant. I, I'm not loving towards God. I'm not keeping of all his commands. Right, that's life in this world. Life in a broken world, nobody keeps it. Right? You know, and so it's the intention of your heart to try to come and be with God even though I'm broken, even though I'm not able to do it, even though I sin. Confession is the way in which we keep it. Confession is acknowledging to God. It's the only reason we do it in the service each time. We don't want to pre- you never want to pretend you're more righteous than you are. Pretend you haven't done anything... Uh, it's when you come clean with it that it can be forgiven. And oftentimes we, um, 
And there's a huge difference, too, between confession and making excuses. You know, when, when someone, you, you ever had like an issue with somebody, and they come to you having done something wrong, and they tell you all the justifications for why they did what they did, and all the excuses, do you feel close to them again? <laughs> but when they come clean and they say, you know something, I did these things. Will you forgive me? And the power's in your hands, and you say, I forgive you, and it's wiped away. This is why this confession becomes this powerful thing that at every moment of every time as we come before this great and mighty awesome God, we don't come with any kind of false pretenses of our own righteousness and our own goodness or anything. We come going, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. And he does. That's the radical thing. This is this, you know, we use a lot, you've heard this a million times in First John. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we actually deceive ourselves. Truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We hear that language a lot, but that is unbelievable. Purified. You become clean, you're restored to that relationship with him, and thus you pray. And prayer is the way you do that. I mean, how do you confess apart from prayer? Confession happens in other world. By confess, you might carry the weight of guilt in this world, but then when you pray, you enter the other world and you acknowledge it to God and you say, cleanse me and wipe me of this stuff, O oh Lord. It's a key. Confession is one of the most powerful things and a powerful principle of prayer. Humbling ourselves before God is not something that makes you feel low. It's something that makes you feel free. It's really a path to joy. A fourth principle from this passage is... Um, it's taking hold, prayer is taking hold of promises in Scripture specifically. And there is an incredible link between Scripture and prayer. Um, in the thing it says, uh, Nehemiah goes on after the confession, it says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Right? This is a powerful promise God gives to Israel. They're wicked, they scatter away, but if they turn to him, he will gather them back. And Nehemiah stands up there and says, now remember that, God. Actually, he remembers this phrase we use oftentimes in Scripture. You know, even throughout the book of Nehemiah, when he prays, he often says, you know, when people do wicked things against them, he says, Lord, remember them. And it's not that God's forgetful, all right? This idea of remember is almost like taking hold of those promises. You know, it's like standing on them and saying, I know I can count on this. And that's a key idea in prayer, that we take hold of the promises of God. I like what Martin Luther said. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of his willingness. Oftentimes, what we do in prayer is we lay hold of the promises of God. We lay hold of things which he wants to do for us. You know, I think when you deal, even with people, I mean, it's, it's a critical thing. You ever, like, try to, like, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I don't have a good analogy for this. Um, but we do this all the time. I, I think some oftentimes with children, if you just kind of give them a bunch of stuff, which they don't even know why you've given it to them, it means nothing to them, they can't even take hold of it but they have to often understand why they're getting something. But then they can take it and value it. And oftentimes we take hold of those promises, we understand them. Um, Tim Keller said, um, our prayers should arise out of an immersion in the scripture. 
We speak only to the degree we are spoken to. The wedding of the Bible and prayer anchors your life in the real God. This is a key idea. Um, scripture, God, this is one of the amazing things about Scripture, is God has told you who he is, what he's like, what his promises are, what can you count on. If your, if your prayers are not rooted in the Scripture, what are they actually rooted in? They're rooted in what you want to be true, in what you hope is true about God, right? It's essentially rooted in your imaginations. And you can go ahead and root your prayers and your imaginations about who God is and what I think he promises and what I think he wants and what I think he would answer to. And you can live in that world of imagination a long time, but you know something? When push comes to shove, imagination never gives you hope because you know in the end you created it. That's one of my problems sometimes with uh, you know, uh, the higher power stuff. They say, make higher power whatever you want. Yeah, make it that, make it that pew if you want. And I guess there is a, a practice you could have of, of sitting before that pew, but when push comes to shove, you darn well know that pew can't save you. And that pew can't give you any help. Your, your prayers and hope need to be rooted in something real. And that's one of the reasons why God has given you an objective reality of Scripture, objective reality of promises that you can actually hold on to. And you be fine, and when you, and that's why Scripture also becomes this radical way in which it's the living Word of God coming into the Scripture. And as you read it and as you interact with it, it moves you to pray. It leads you to pray. You know, and, I, and that's an experiential thing, but it, if, you know, knitting your prayers and Scripture together is this powerful thing and it rolls upon one another. It's one of the reasons God has given it to us. Um, I like what Tim went on to say. He said, We would never produce the full range of biblical prayer if we were not initiating prayer according to our own inner needs and psychology, it can only be uh, produced if we are responding in prayer according to who God is as revealed in the Scripture. I'm sorry, we would never produce the full range of biblical prayer if it was just happening by our inner needs and psychology. Um, I'm, I think I said it wrong. It's according to Scripture. Some prayers in the Bible are like an intimate conversation with a friend. Others are like an appeal to a great monarch. And others approximate a wrestling match. You know, which I think is just, you know, it's great. It really is like that. And, and as you walk through Scripture, as you see these stuff, all these different kinds of prayers flow out of you. But they're linked together. And so, uh, and uh, the next principle, and really the last one I want to hit on in Nehemiah in particular, is ask for what you need. Because he gets done with this prayer, and he says, now give your servant success by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That is a very specific prayer. I'm about to go before the king right now with my needs. Lord, grant me favor in the presence of this man. You know, people have different feelings about how specific to be in prayer, don't you? How specific to ask for things. Oftentimes, many people I've heard say, well, I, I don't want to ask for specific things. It feels so selfish. Or like God really cares so specifically about these things. Well, number one, it's not biblical, you know, in some ways. I mean, God does pray for these very specific things. But I find that oftentimes when people say that, there's actually an element of pride to it. Because what you're essentially saying is, um, I don't need to ask specifically for this because I got it. You know, I'm going to be able to do this in my own power. And asking for the specifics sometimes also acknowledges our great need. How we actually desperately need God to do this very specific thing. Because I can't do it myself. It's a cry for mercy. It's an acknowledgement of your own weakness and smallness. But, <laughs> there's a big but. Um, there's two great errors, right? One great error is to be so specific about everything 
Uh, and the other great error is to think prayer is actually about getting stuff. Prayer is actually not about getting stuff. Now, this may seem like a tension, but you can ask specifically for stuff, but it's not actually about getting stuff. It's a, it's a huge idea. You know, so it, it, and the real danger is some people, I've, I've, I've had some people where they get so specific about everything in prayer, it's not even about God anymore. It's like God is the source to make your will be done here on earth, not God's will be done. God, here's how I see it going down, and here's what you ought to do. Obviously, it's a really, really problematic approach. But you see, you've got to balance these things. What is prayer really about? Prayer is about um, being changed by God. It's about living in that second world. It's about opening your heart and relating to God. It's, about, it's not about conforming God to your will. It's about having your will conform to his. It's about God putting your lenses on to even begin to understand what God wants and desires in this world. It's beginning to see the world as he sees it, see people as they see them. You know, when you're, when you're praying in the midst of, a, 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 of a, a dispute with your boss or maybe with your spouse, you know, yeah, you want to pray going, you know, God, uh, you know, change their mind, you know. <laughs> but, I, I, but as you pray, it may begin change your, their mind. But it ends up going, Lord, I begin to see this person as you see them. And it begins being filled with compassion. And you begin to realize that it actually doesn't matter if you're right or who's right. You know, it, it changes you. But oftentimes the, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the place where what forces us to go into prayer is often our needs, isn't it? It's our needs, it's our pain, it's our fears that drive us into prayer. So it often happens at the point of request, but God then does something very radical about it. Now I think about this church. Long have I desired for this church to be just this zealous, powerful church of prayer. Gosh, you guys should have been here on Friday night. Oh, it's unbelievable, man. Anyone who was here was like, this is incredible. I'm crying out to God. Everyone, you, know, you ask the folks, like, wow, what a time of prayer. But I think in what really drove us to begin to become more praying was when the whole thing was happening, deciding whether to go or not. When I saw the way this church went to prayer, even the, the, the march, when it looked like we were utter despair of what we were going to do before we left, this is like two years ago, it looked, I mean, I looked at it and go, this is hopeless. I don't know how we're going to get out of this knot. The church began praying in earnest, and many people and others for like a month, and suddenly at the end of it, we began to see a course. And suddenly there was light at the end of it. All the elders would tell you, you cannot believe, I just, that month changed. Like, how did that just, how did it go like that? And then the whole time before we were going to be voted to leave, there was, I mean, and you think, was it, I think about how pleasing it was to God, because God, you know, it's not like things are out of control to God. But suddenly it took the need, it took the pain, it took the fearfulness, it took the scary situation, that suddenly all these people are calling out to him. I think that's darn pleasing to God. You know, regardless of what the actual events are, God wants us to live in that second world. And oftentimes, sadly, when things are hard, we're more apt to live in the second world than when things are easy. Isn't that true? You know, so oftentimes those very specific prayers, God condescends to give us a sense of need because he's really calling us to live in that second world and to be changed by him. To let God mold us and to see the world and to want the things he wants. I love what John Bunyan said. This one's a little less nasty than the other one. Um, uh, he says, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the soul to God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit 
for such things as he has promised. The best prayers have often more groans than words. Prayers, it's sincere, it's sensible, it's affectionate. You're pouring out your soul to God. Through the Holy Spirit, right? For the things that he has promised to give us. That's what real prayer is. And God invites us to that. He wants us to take him up on it. So many times we don't take him up on it. We don't go to prayer. We don't live in that second world as he so desires we would. My exhortation to myself and to all of us, let's accept his invitation and go to the Lord in prayer. I believe it's really true what Richard Foster says. Prayer is a little like an automobile. You don't have to understand everything about its inner workings for it to get you somewhere. I have found that if we simply pray, even if we pray in wrong ways, God is pleased with our feeble efforts and Jesus lovingly guides us into more excellent ways. And we can be assured that the blessed Holy Spirit will adjust, correct, interpret our prayer before the throne of God. I'd like to start and end with this quote because I think it's the critical thing. What does he say? Just do it. Don't be insecure about how to pray or I'm not good at it or other people pray better than I do. Who cares? Just pray. He wants to hear from you. You know, when you have a little two-year-old child or one-year-old and they're beginning to speak, you don't care at all what they say to you. But you are sure glad when they look you in the eye and they say, Dada, Mama, or or they address you. That's the heart of prayer. You're not trying to, God's not trying to learn something from us. He just wants us to go to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. That we can speak now and that you are here. That you hear us. That you want to hear from us. That the master of the universe listens to us. Oh, Lord, such knowledge is too much for us to even imagine. It's scary for us to even take hold of it, Lord. Yet our heart cries inside of us to do it. Oh, Lord. And we do. We confess, Lord, that we stray. We let all these other things pull us away from you, Lord. That we've been so lacking in our earnestness and our prayer. But we ask you forgive us of that, Lord. And that you change us. Make us ever aware of your presence. Ever aware that we live in a world with you. Lord, help us to take hold of your promises. To understand the things you long to give us. To understand your willingness to bless us, guide us, lead us. The hope you have given us that you want us to stand on in the midst of this world. Oh Lord, change us. Mold us into the people you would desire us to be. Bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name.